Hello, and welcome to episode 168 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Jarrett Benford. This week, host Christian Romney talks to Wilker Lucio about guitar, Pathum, and how to approach design, what motivates design, and using maps. But before we jump into the episode, I'd like to remind everyone that we are hiring. Check out cognitech.com slash careers.html or reach out to us at jobs at cognitech.com. And now, Christian and Wilker. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Cognicast. I'm your host, Christian Romney, and our guest today is Wilker Lucio. Wilker, thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi. Hello, Chris. Thanks a lot for uh, having me here. Very glad to be participating on that one. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. We've been meaning to have you on for a while, so I'm, I'm glad we finally got to do this. One thing I would like to tell you is that you may know, we like to kick off the show by asking our guests to relate an experience of art. So I'm going to put you on the spot right at, right out of the gate. Ah, okay. I have time to remember a quick one out of her mind, but one that I, that I find was, mm, that's a hard one. <laughs> one I remember now is uh, when I was working in a company with my boss and like we did some, I mean, I play a bit of guitar, but I don't do jams. I just make, uh, memorize some songs and like the experience just jamming with my boss without really knowing what to do, I think was an interesting one. One of like the one you're just putting me now, like, okay, I don't know what to do, but I have to do something. And then it ends up doing something cool again. Oh, that's, that's very cool. So actually I had, I had planned to ask you a little bit about guitar, but uh, at the end, but you know what? I'd like, I like where this is going. Let's do it at the beginning instead. So how long have you been playing guitar? I mean, I, I started playing when I was like 15. So that's like 18 years ago, something like that. But I didn't play like that very often. So I just go picking a bit here, a bit there. And sometimes you just want to get the clear head. So stop doing stuff and get the guitar a little bit. That's how I, how I deal with this. Oh, cool. And did you have any formal training as when you were 15 or did you just pick up a guitar and start teaching yourself? Uh, I I started with picking up with some friends that already played. Right. And after a while, I went, I did some schooling. I did some private lessons, but nothing, nothing very seriously. Oh, neat. What was it like to jam with, you know, for the first time, not having done that? What, what did you learn from that? Oh, it's, it gets a lot about the feeling, right? Instead of like, if I try to make the theory in the moment, it would be like, I would not do anything. So it's more like going on the guitar and just like try to find the scale and stick to it, find something that works, and then you repeat it, go back and forth. It's an interesting discovery experience, I think. Yeah, that's cool. I, I have never done that yet, but I, I'm i an amateur guitarist as well, but much more amateur than you. I picked up the guitar for the first time during the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, nice. I'm, I'm what kind of, kind of things? Are you doing the electric guitar or the acoustic guitar? I have both. I got one of each because I couldn't make up my mind. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the 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 acoustics more portable, so I you know I'll sit oh. on the couch and I'll I'll screw around a little bit until my wife gets tired of hearing the noise. Oh yeah, and if you want to travel, there is those three forty ones, the, the smaller ones, right? And there's also some silent guitars that are like uh, they kind of you can kind of unbuild them and and it gets easier to carry around. 
Oh, that's cool. So I, I actually was on your blog recently and I noticed a tool for learning to play the guitar called YouTube Looper. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh yeah, that's I like that. That's a nice project they have. It's an extension for Chrome. And it became because of my desire, like the, in Brazil, there is this YouTube channel called Cifra Club. And they are really good at having guitar lessons. But the thing is, when you're learning from a video, right? And you're trying to get the practice of some section, it's better if you could just loop on it over and over and over and over again, and especially changing speeds and so. And they said, okay, YouTube already has this gigantic arsenal of media that you can use and learn from. So I can just leverage that and make a tool that can make a loops. So this tool extends and I try to make it like feel like a YouTube part. So it adds icons on the YouTube or expect YouTube to have features. Right. And then you can create loops for specific sections. You can make many loops. You can label those loops. And nowadays, it even saves on your Google account if you are on Chrome. So you can remember. So you have your loops kind of forever. If you go back on the video, you have the same loops you created before. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, it helps me a lot because that's where I get most of my songs with these with this people. And like, yeah, it's something I still use quite often. Yeah, I do it too. I guess it's, it's probably very common. This isn't uh, something that only you and I have in common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's neat. So tell me what, what I mean, obviously there's there's one very big open source project that you contribute to also beside YouTube Looper, which I definitely want to spend some time talking to you about. And that's Pathome. So for those in the audience that might be unfamiliar, you know, could you share a little bit about Pathome? What is it? What problems does it try to solve? Okay. I, nowadays, I see Pathom as a navigation library. It's something for to deal with the problem of more and more, you have more different data sources where we store our data, right? Uh, if you go for bigger applications in bigger companies, especially, it's difficult to have all the data in one place, especially if the company is experimenting with something here and there. So what Pathom can do is it creates a system where you have a language based on attributes. And although not very not so popular if people know RDF and stuff like that, it uses that kind of mentality of modeling. And what Python, in Python, you implement this species of code called resolvers where you establish relationships between attributes. So you can say things like, oh, if I give you a first and last name, I, if you give me a first and last name, I can give you the full name. So mm -hmm. it turns it turns the problem of finding data in a different direction, right? If we think about REST and uh, REST and APIs nowadays, you have to do this like imperative code. You're like, okay, I want the user data, so I'm gonna call that endpoint, and that endpoint's gonna give me this. But that may not be the final data I want. Maybe you get that data and use that data to call another API to get more data and more data. So. The complexity of, of data access in this scenario increases as you need more endpoints. So as we can think about it as the distance between the initial data you have and the data you want to go to. And what Python tries to do is to remove that increasing complexity. By establishing all the relationships and moving parts, you can go to Python and ask, hey, I have this user ID, please give me the full name. And then it can, it has internal indexes, it can traverse, it can figure out what functions need to be called, and then it calls the functions for you. 
So you end up in a system that has, for the user querying it, it's always constant query complexity because you can just say what you have and what you want. And all the middle ground pattern will try to figure out for you. Interesting. So this sounds a little bit like the GraphQL, of course. What are the differences between, say, Pathome and GraphQL, which many people in the audience might be familiar with? Yeah, sure. I mean, GraphQL was an inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. And before I go there, just a little bit of story of Pathome. Pathome started, and also the name. The name mm -hmm. Pathome comes from just the two words glued together, path and om. That's because Python was initially created just to be a generic parser for Omnext, the library that Dave Nolan wrote many years ago. Right. It started with much more humble, humble goals than it has nowadays. So it's just to be a generic parser and then gives the name. And it was already inspired on GraphQL back then, right? right. Because Omnext was inspired on it. The biggest difference is first in the way you look at data modeling. So it's like looking at a SQL database versus looking at a Sparkle database with RDF information. And the emphasis here is in the difference of these things that I call container types. So you model things in GraphQL as container types, like you have a person that has fields this, this, and that. You have a company that has these fields, this, and that. Instead, uh, much more like RDF and Datomic and, um, and Closure Spec by C, Pattern uses the attributes themselves as the primary building block. So in GraphQL, you can, like, once you have the model, you have to kind of stick to it. And if you want to extend it, you have to kind of go to the schema and change the schema. Mm. In Pattern, that's different because you don't have, you don't have this, key, this schema predefined. Mm -hmm. Instead, in Pattern, as you write resolvers, you create those relationships right away. And so this, to, in my opinion, this allows a much more extensible system because you can just get any existing system and just create a new resolver that hooks on any of the attributes. So you're not bounded by this container type or stuff like that. So it's a more free flowing form of modeling. That's really interesting. So another difference obviously that comes to mind is the data format. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like for, for closure developers, Python is really interesting because we use EQL, which is something else there also. I think EQL is the most comparable to GraphQL if we go on the right levels of abstraction. Right. Because GraphQL itself doesn't implement anything, right? It just has the documentation and definition of what things should look like and how they can be mapped, but you need an implementation like a Relay or Apollo. And in the same sense, EQL is a language to define a shape. So in EQL, it's about defining what shape of data you want. And that's very similar to what spec two is doing, right? With the, with the spec, I forgot the names they use there, but the spec are like post syntax on Datomic. That's mm -hmm. where the EQL was born from, was an extension of the Datomic post syntax. In the end, it's about expressing a shape. And then you need a library that's going to process that. So Python is such a library. But for example, the Fulcro client library has its own processor that's more optimized for real-time loading data from a local database, a local map database enclosure. So there's this EQL versus GraphQL. And EQL is just hidden. So for closure developers, you have a data format already. 
which is not true for people using GraphQL, which has its own syntax. And it's mostly dealt with as strings everywhere. Just mm. like the same problem, I think SQL falls into, right? Because the format for humans, not for machines. Right. And of course, all the advantages of Eden data come along for the ride. This is another thing that you have to register in the GraphQL syntax is like ways to represent the types of data and map them out to, to be parsed. Yeah. Yeah. In EQL, we don't even care if you don't want to type your attributes. Like, I think it's nice to have it because you, then you can, you can leverage that for doing validations, for doing code generation, but you don't have to. If you don't want, if you're just prototyping and you want to something quick and dirty, you don't have to type anything. So this is now the third version of Pathome, right? It's Pathome 3 is what you're working on. What are the differences in Pathome 3? What's new? Oh, cool. Uh, as you may know, working there at Newbank, Pathome 2 was for very specific needs, the needs that we had at Newbank back then. So it was more like we had this infrastructure that I inherited from Omnext. So the, the parser architecture and the way we model things come straight from there. I was just extending and extending it. But over time, I could realize that with all the new ideas, the ideas of connect, that's the part of the library that does the attribute traversal and stuff, we could get much better if we just do something very different from what Omnext proposed back then. And this could make it more efficient. And I could add some features that were harder to add back then. So some of those features that are already in Pattern 3 are, for example, the ability to ask for optional inputs on resolvers. So you can say like, hey, I want this attribute, but if you don't have it, it's okay. I can still work without it. So Pattern will try to figure out if it's possible to get that attribute and it's going to give it or not. Another one is support for nested inputs. So this is important, for example, let's say you want to have an aggregation, a sum of scores, okay? And yep. you just have a list of things with IDs. So now you need to say like, hey, for every user, I want the score of the user. So something has to be parsed and processed internally. And then you get all these scores of all these users and compute an attribute called total score. So to do that, you need to be able to do these nested queries. And that's something that's supported now in Pattern 3. And other than that, speed, Pattern 3 is much faster than Pattern 2 in almost every way. And especially, and that's something, but that's still something under development. That's the parallel processor support. That's like many, many times more lightweight in Pattern 3 than Pattern 2. In the end, like there's a whole, it was a real rewrite. So I write new algorithms. I made something that a planner that's more elaborate. So it tries to think ahead of time more than before. So it could enable the development of all those features I'm talking about. Pretty cool. That sounds like, a, what, what is the upgrade path from path of two to three? Right now, there is not much of a one, a clear one. Mm -hmm. Although it's really about how much of the specifics of path of two you use. For example, the resolver thing is pretty much the same. So it's very trivial to write a function that converts a resolver from pattern two to pattern three. The, uh, the difficulty comes more in terms if you wrote how many plugins you have written, because plugins are, they have different entry points on pattern three. And also if you are using keys from the environment with names there are from pattern two. So some of those names have new names on pattern three. Some of them don't exist at all. So there is, it has to look on 
what kind of usage pattern tree you did and to make that conversion. I would hope in the future to have to have a better path for that. And one of the ideas that I find interesting there is that another new feature of pattern tree is something called smart maps. So smart maps is a new interface. In pattern two, you only have the option to do EQL requests, right? Mm-hmm. And you do the requests and you ask for information. But in pattern tree, I provided this new this new interface called a smart map. And you can think of a smart map as a custom map type, which it is. So if you think about a closure, a datomic entity, a datomic entity is also a custom map type that you can ask the keys for the relationships. And if it doesn't know that key in memory, it's going to fetch that automatically for you and it's going to work transparently as a map, right? Right, using the, so, the entity API. Is, yeah, using the entity API, correct. So smart maps is kind of like that, but instead of being tied to the datomic schema and implementation you have on datomic, you are bound by your resolvers. So you have a smart map that has some data and you ask another data. And then the pattern, if that key is not on the map already, pattern try to figure out if it can resolve that key by your resolver system, your indexes. And if it can, it's going to process. So you work as if it was a normal map, but it's a map that can discover data as you ask for them. Ask for it. Neat. I imagine using that for a portability layer. So imagine if you have pattern two stuff resolvers that are asking for keys on pattern two, that environment map now could be a smart map. And if mm. you ask for a key from pattern two that has a different name on pattern three, it, the map could automatically figure out the translation for you. And that could be a cool way to make this transport layer with less with less pain on the on the users. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I was also doing a little research ahead of time and looking at other novelty that you've got in the third version. And there's something called dynamic resolvers. What are those about? Oh, yeah. Those uh, those kind of existed in Python 2, but yeah, they have a completely new thing on Python 3. And they are about, if we think that static resolvers have a well-defined input and output, right? And they are like this unit piece, a, a function that's going to execute. Dynamic resolvers is about delegating parts of the process to a different processor arrow, kind of. For example, uh, Pattern 3 already has an implementation for GraphQL, for incorporating GraphQL on the Pattern system. So what you do is this. You can point to a GraphQL endpoint using the Pattern 3 GraphQL library. And this, this is going to download all the schema from that GraphQL. And that's a very good part of GraphQL being introspectable. And then Petal is going to generate this whole set of dynamic resolvers inside. But those resolvers, when they they are not getting invoked, they are more they are more more about masking the query. So if you ask for a query, an EQL query, parts of it need to go on the GraphQL. Petal will be able to figure out what part there is, generate a subset, another EQL request. And it's going to send to something else. In this case, it's going to send to a GraphQL processor. So it's going to convert the EQL to GraphQL, send that query to GraphQL, get the result back, and incorporate the result on your system. And Python does a lot of the heavy lifting here because you can have many different cases here. Let's just start with a simple one. If I just ask for the same query, I would ask on GraphQL on EQL using the attributes there. That's the simple case. Get, Python is just going to get that query and send it over. 
But imagine if you are asking for something that has a dependency of something of the GraphQL. Then it's different. Then you, you don't even see the GraphQL stuff on your query. But Python has to be able to figure out what subparts there is. And it tries to batch it to do the minimal number of requests possible. So it tries to compute all of that and decide, okay, this is the part of the query that I need to send to that GraphQL, which is a dynamic resolver system. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm following along. I, I have to confess, I, I've done some work with Pathome and experimented a little bit with Pathome 3, so I might have a head start. But definitely, it sounds like very cool stuff. I know yeah. that you also have a a library called Pathome Viz or a tool. Yeah. Tell oh. us a little bit about that. And uh, what Before we before sure. go that, I'd like to add something else to the dynamic resolvers. Absolutely. That's like after the explanation, because there is a bigger motivation for them. That was like a big part of Python 3. There is to make that same thing I told you about GraphQL, but with Python itself. So I have this, this architecture idea that I like to experience, uh, that I like to see if it works as well as I'd like to. There's like, imagine you are in a microservice architecture, okay, and you have multiple, multiple graphs. Imagine every service has a Python graph inside of them. So what dynamic resolvers in Python 3 allow you to do, and that feature is already, it's, it's there, but I don't consider that stable because there's not enough testing and it has enough complexity for me to not trust it until I see it working reasonably well. So what it could do is that you could have one a service that's a federator, and this federator, all it does is look at all the other services that have Python. And with like zero integration code, you could just pull all of them in a single service. And then now people can do requests for this federated service. It can automatically split and spread and orchestrate all the, all the division of the query to other services and then glue all together and give you as if you're requesting a single service. This to me is like the, the killer feature that like a kind of the end goal of Python where you, when it's doing this very well, this is, this is the, this I think is where a very big leverage can be taken from. So this is pretty cool. I do want to spend a couple minutes exploring this. So so how does it manage to do that? Is there so you you mentioned previously that GraphQL has introspection capabilities. Does Pathom have something similar or yes, it does. Those indexes that mm -hmm. Pathom builds for itself, that's something you can query Pathom for them. You can ask Pathom, hey, give me your indexes, and then uh and then it's gonna give you the indexes. Uh in Pathom 3, that's a bit separate, like there's something I call the boundary interface. That's something I created to help people to expose Python. So it does some things, and one of them is to make these indexes exposed. But if you don't want to expose your index for any reason, you can <laughs> retract it. It's fine. But yeah, it does that. And in compar comparison with GraphQL, for example, if we look at GraphQL, if you want to do something like that that I just described to you in GraphQL, there is something called federation. Uh, especially mm -hmm. there's the implementation of Apollo Federation. But to me, the biggest difference is that in the case of Apollo Federation, you have to design your GraphQL graph to be extended. So you have to think about the items on the query type that might collide or not. Right. So there is all this design up front you have to do to make that work. In, in Python, you don't have to do this design at all. Whatever you do, Python can connect them because of the attribute-driven system. And, and then you're like, because you are designing already thinking of that way, the likeliness of the attributes to collide gets very low. 
And when they collide, it's sometimes for a good reason. For example, mm. if you want a customer ID in many services, that's fine. They're just doing different usages for that. So it's a much, uh, I think, simple to extend because of that, because you don't have to do any of this planning ahead of time. This is, I mean, demonstrating the power of namespaces, right? Yeah. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting thing. When, when you import a GraphQL thing to Python, I force you to give it a namespace. So all the names of the GraphQL inside of the Python would be like the namespace you gave plus the type on GraphQL slash the name of the attribute. So mm. it makes it in a way that's going to be, it's going to play nice with the rest of the pieces. Do you register like an alias when you define the external GraphQL source or? Yeah, exactly. Okay. What, what he, yeah, what you get is a configuration map, which includes the namespace and you pass it a function. That's a function that will take a GraphQL request and return a JSON response from that. Because then you can implement your request as you wish. Could be an HTTP, maybe a WebSockets, whatever, whatever is, is your case. How do you map, you know, do, do type mapping, for instance, JSON doesn't have as rich capability to express types that Eden does, for example, you know, dates and UUIDs yeah. and things like this. I mean, what's, what's the general approach to handling that mismatch? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. I personally have not had to deal with this issue so far, mm -hmm. but I have another library <laughs> that I call awesome. SpecCourse. <laughs> cool. Uh, which which is a library that can leverage your specs to do coercion. So in in a very similar way that Clojure does the generators from your spec, right? They look at, oh, if you use that spec, I have this generator. I have something to do coercion. So if you have an int, I know how to convert to an int. And if you have your specs and you have that, you can hook it up in the process so you get the data coursed on the point. Because we already have to do some of that, right? Because the JSON is going to come completely unnamespaced. So part of the work in Python GraphQL is to get that and put the namespaces back so it aligns right with the original query. Very cool. So it strikes me how sophisticated you know this architecture is and it's evident that you've thought deeply about the problem i'd like to ask you a little bit now a little bit of a meta question which is you know what is your approach to design when you sit down to plan something like pathome how do you approach that interesting question i i think my process is very pragmatic i just keep evolving and getting things like Python was completely like a pragmatic approach. You just had a problem and we realized the initial idea for the connect in the case of Python was a very eureka moment for myself, mm -hmm. which was like, I was at Newbank and we were doing, starting doing Fukuro and stuff. And there is, there is no connect back then. Right. The implementation of Python was just like, it's a, was a multi-method. It just said what an, an attribute should respond to, and then you implement one attribute at a time. That's how it worked back then. But then I was playing around with this, and we had problems like, okay, I can fetch user by ID, or I can fetch users by social security number. And now I find myself replicating a lot of the code. And you know when things are just not feeling right? Like, yes. <laughs> uh, and then like, like, look at that and say, this won't scale. Like, if I'm the one that knows that, and I have a lot of trouble to do something that's that simple. Like, I don't think I can, I can expect other people in the company to do it right, not in this path. And then I was like, okay, how can I do something else? And then uh, I was about, 
okay, what if I take some of the control to the library and let the user just specify the transition? And that's pretty much the story of how the connect part of the pattern came to be. And I was so excited on that day. I was really like jumping in my house because as I started to think through the idea, like, yes, it felt like, yes, this really solves a lot of the problem. It's like, I could not sleep. I went through the next day with my, my manager, like, hey, I have this idea. I was super excited to show it off. And then we started evolving from there. Very cool. But, yeah. But nowadays, in general, just to be a bit more generic, a general on the response as well. Nowadays, I, I very buy into this attribute-driven design for stuff. So I always thinking about how these models fit attributes and how they're going to do it. Yeah. All right. And, you know, approaching the iteration, you know, or the evolutionary work from Pathone 2 to 3, do you just keep a list of the the rough edges that bother you and they keep you up at night or, you know, I'm just curious about your, your process of how do you, how do you take these ideas and begin experimenting on them? Yeah, I try to keep track of those things. I use, um, I like to use Rome Research. It is my note-taking app of choice. So I keep things there. Some of the on YouTube, I, I have to confess that I'm not the most organized person. Like I, I keep just <laughs> going and solving the things as they appear or I'm more excited about them. Sure. I'm trying to be more organized because I think it's important. <laughs> but yeah, no, so far it's more like a reactionist thing. You know, somebody, for example, the Petal Tree GraphQL was, had a very slow implementation initially because I was trying to do some very fancy pattern usage and try to push it to the limit. But it's end, end up for that specific situation was not a good fit at all. And so, for example, to load the GitLab API, which is a quite big API, it could take like one minute and a half in my computer, and that's just <laughs> unworkable. But then somebody comes in the chat in Slack and say, hey, I'm trying to use this. And what's funny, because I was trying to use the GitLab API, the one that I knew had a problem, because I also tried to use that before. And then I said, ah, okay, I have to do the implementation. And then go a night and then go there, make the implementation, and now it can load in five seconds. So now I'm happy about that. Cool. Tell me a little bit about Rome. And so I'm do you, are you an Emacs user? Is this do you use Rome with org mode or do you use something else? No, I mean Rome Rome Research is a proprietary app. Mm-hmm. The app. I don't I don't use Emacs. I use the Rome app itself. Okay. The Electra cool. app. I worked for them for a little bit after I left Newbank. That was, I went there. Yeah, I worked three months with them and then I left. I was feeling, I was already like uh, exhausted a little bit and I was looking for, right. looking to take a sabbatical even before I joined them. Right. So I thought like, oh, a startup may be more calm and I may do better there. I'm <laughs> completely wrong. <laughs> Wait, you, <laughs> you thought a startup was going to be calm? <laughs> No, I thought like uh, it's gonna be a very different set of problems that I have to do at New Bank right now. I thought it could work, but it really didn't. Sure. So I had to take my time off, and then I took a time off. I took almost a year sabbatical, and in this time I did a lot of the work of Pattern Tree, mm. which was cool. And then yeah, <laughs> very neat. Yeah, so I, I actually have obviously, as I just demonstrated, I have zero experience with with Rome, but I did know that there was like an org Rome plugin. So I'm I'm not sure how that works, but it's been on my yeah. I guess mind. the really big idea that worked very well for Rome was the links in the backlinks idea, right? That's what everybody else copied after Rome. 
So you kind of have your own mini Wikipedia that you can edit real time. Right. I find that so when you get used to it, you can get very sophisticated notation methods and you can have links. You can have blocks that you put a link for a block so you can see parts of the other graph. Mm. So it's a system that allows you to like reuse your notes in a more smart way because you can have these references and links and stuff. So you can get information not just from the text, but also from the connections of the things. Sure. Uh, that sounds immediately useful to me. I'm going to have to take some weekend time to look oh. into it. Yeah, if you want some other time, I would be glad to sit with you and go over some things. Oh, oh. <laughs> careful what you offer. I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> All right. So I have another kind of a meta question for you coming back to, to Pathome. So, you know, this is a nice open source project what are some of the challenges of running an open source project from your perspective and you know what's your approach to it and how do you handle it you know do you do you rely much on contributors what's that like yeah i would say i'm, I'm more closer to the model of the benevolent dictator on that sure so I like i love taking opinions and like um i love helping people out on slack so i'm on slack all the time i try to answer everybody get there because I love to see the community growing and there are some code collaborations here and there, but I, I would say I write probably at least 90, 95% of the thing. I'm very happy to take some contribute contributions, but I think in this project in Patron specifically, it's harder to get because if people want to contribute, they have to understand a lot of the internals and like, I, I have not seen many people willing to do that. But in other libraries, when things are more obvious or sometimes on documentation, I get a lot of help from documentation. So I like this experience. I kind of feel like, you know, those, they say your friends is a family you choose kind of that to me. This sure. feels like a community we choose. I choose to be in this community and I love to both provide and get information from it. And I think and from all the communities, developer communities I've been in, like the closure seems to be the best. Like I love the people in the closure community. Everybody is very nice and very always willing to help. So I try to be like that as well. That's really cool. That's been my experience as well. It's uh, it is a wonderful community. It's a privilege to be a part of it. What what other tech are you interested in? Is there something else on your radar screen besides the the tech that you're working on? Any anything catch your attention? Oh, let me see. Tech that gets my attention nowadays outside of this world. I mean, I'm always studying databases and I like, I, I would love to make more integration of Python with RDF stuff. Mm. I think there's some, some things to be there. And although uh, RDF is not that popular, mm. there are some huge data sets on RDF out there. There's even uh, one very interesting case that I have is from this guy called Mark Wadler. I, I'm, I hope I'm speaking right his name. Mm. But he's a neuroscientist on the NH, in NHS in London. And he's doing a lot of work with Peton to glue together different medical data sets using Peton. Wow. So, so yeah, he just, he just re recently released something on, on the announcements on Slack, the, his library. And oh. like, I find that, that usage pretty cool. Definitely. That's got to be pretty rewarding when you see the library that you build be used, you know, by other people and, you know, doing interesting work like this. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, completely, man. But I think like for nowadays, I recently moved to an apartment. I think a lot of 
of like renovation. So I think my tech ideas nowadays are more like nice chairs and how you build the wall. What are the techs to make your house nicer? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what you're doing when you step away. When you step away from the computer besides playing the guitar, I guess it's uh, renovating your, your living space. Yeah, yeah. No, recently, that's, that's that takes a lot of my mind. <laughs> I, I've been through that. Yes, I can imagine. Very cool. So let me ask you another thing I, I meant to ask you earlier, and I didn't want to lose sight of it. Tell me a little bit about Pathome Viz and what its role oh, is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I am a strong believer of like tools for thought and that we need tools to improve in even our, our reasoning. I take a lot of that from Brett Victor. For anyone out there, if you've never seen Brett Victor presentations, I highly recommend. That guy is amazing. And in Patton, one important thing is that we're delegating a lot of control, right? All this call of methods. So you are delegating. So how when things go wrong, how do you know what got what got wrong? And that's a question that I think that's very hard to answer without good tooling. So for me, Patton V is the tool to give you visualization on Patton. So you can see what Patton is doing and how it's doing it. And that was also a difference from Patton 2 to 3 because of the different way of planning for the query. And just going quick on this, in Patton 2, the plan was attribute by attribute. So Patton would see one attribute was going to make a plan to resolve that attribute, run that plan, and go for the next attribute. Okay? In Python 3, it actually looks for all the sibling attributes at once. And it builds an execution graph. Because you can have the simplest case is like call this resolver and then call this resolver and then call this resolver. That could be both or serially if they are dependent on each other. Or it could be with an end node hooking them, which means like they are not dependent on each other. And that's also part of what makes the parallel processor on Python 3 so much better is because it knows what you can parallelize on the planar level before start running anything. So you can spin up different threads and do stuff like that. So and because we have this new plan, now in Python Vs, when you're using with Python 3, you can see that graph. So it renders for you the whole graph. So you can see what the execution is like and what nodes ran because you can have R nodes as well when you have multiple options to resolve the same thing. So this is a nice way to kind of see what the execution is being like. That's neat. I bet it helps. I mean, I could be wrong here, but does do you find that that helps to, say, avoid errors? I know there are cases where the programmer can make a mistake and, say, have multiple resolvers that publish the same list of attributes, for example. Um, yeah. And that could be a legit thing, but this right. helps you see that happening in case you don't want that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one other very cool feature in that, uh, to be honest, this one I developed way for my, more for myself mm. to understand the pattern while developing. There is this feature called plan snapshots. So on top of just seeing the plan and running, you can click on this button to see a step by step of how pattern build that graph. So you can see pattern doing shit like, oh, I see these attributes, so I'm going to call that node. But these attributes depends on this, this, and that. So, And you can see, you can go step by step and see how the plan became from nothing to the thing that got executed. Super interesting. Cool. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, play with the new bits. 
So, uh, Wilker, before we wrap up, I was wondering if I could trouble you to share a piece of advice with our audience. A uh, piece of advice. Use maps, people. Use maps. <laughs> Use maps. Really? Yeah. Maps are this great extensible data structure that I think we don't use enough. And namespace keywords. Use namespace keywords, right? When you write functions, if your function takes a map, you can extend that function forever. But if you keep just adding arities, you get to screw yourself over time. So especially if functions in the middle, use maps and use namespace keywords. That's my advice. Well, spoken like a true closure is awesome. Well, this, this time has flown by. I'd like to thank you, Wilker, for coming on the show today. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. It was really great. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much, Ross. It was great to talk to you and very great to meet you. And I hope to meet you, meet you again soon. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to meet in Sao Paulo or uh, thereabouts. Yeah, are, are you in Sao Paulo right now or in the uh, U.S.? I'm not. I'm in the U.S., but it's on my list of things to do, let's just say. Yeah, when you come here to visit the Richie Hickey room at New Bank or something, ping me up. Let's uh, take a coffee or a beer. <laughs> Sounds great. Un, uma cerveja estupidamente gelada. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Wilker. And uh, many thanks to our podcast listeners. I hope you've enjoyed another episode of the Cognicast. Thank you, everybody, for listening as well. See ya. Our host this week was Christian Romney, who is at Christian Romney on Twitter. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cognicast is produced by Jarrett Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G, played by Russ Olson. And the outro music is by Nazca at nazcamusic.com. I'm Jarrett Benford. Please stay safe and healthy out there. And thanks for listening to The Cognicast. <laughs>